0: Amen. Hey, once again, we're in our study
1: World Religions, Cults, and the Occult, number 13. Mary, I didn't even look at you, but I know you're there. Yeah. Part, two. Part two. Okay. I was expecting the tagline but we'll just skip the tagline yeah part two is the tagline the untold history of the charismatic movement that's right and uh, by way of, uh, uh, of taking a recap here we saw that uh, the charismatic movement the whole premise a lot of one of the big premises is the reason why this is strange the reason why it seems uh, kind of weird to you is because it's a last day's outpouring of God's spirit on people no it's not and that's what we've been doing now in part two the first half the first 20 studies we dealt with the false teachings and and all that kind of stuff and we're still gonna deal with some false teachings uh, unfortunately, it just keeps going. But we're dealing with the premise that this is nothing new. This is old-fashioned false teaching, false teachers just repackaged, okay? We dealt with far, as far back as the early church. Had to deal with this in Montanism. Then we saw it carried through the dark ages in Western Europe uh, through Catholicism, much uh, charismatic behavior. Then we got America's first uh, charismatics, if you will, the Shakers, who came over from the Quakers and they did their shaking, so they were the Shakers. Literally, that's how they got their name. Then the Knights, both of these uh, eventually hopped the pond over here to the United States. Then we saw last week, if you were here, guess who was also a charismatic? Guess who also had visions from God? Guess who also said he was a prophet from God? Guess who also said that he's got a new truth, and it's the only truth, and the only new way? Everything else is a heritage. Guess who also said that he had a a, a visit from an angel? Yeah, it runs with Joseph Smith. That's why we have Mormonism today, because again, that's a charismatic mindset. Once you get outside the Bible, okay, and you say that God told me to tell you, I got a new word, you're going to spawn a Cult slash false teaching, and that's why we're dealing with this. This is what this stuff leads to. Then we saw that carried on. This was in the second great awakening, as we're kind of still in there again tonight, the second great awakening. The reason why it was called the second great awakening, because... It was the second one, praise God, give it up, the spirit of God's all over. Pastor Tom in the back there, <laughs> that's right. And, but we're dealing with basically the early to the mid 1800s, okay. Now again, notice that this is long before the Azusa Street Revival. Remember that's supposed to be the beginning of the Pentecostal charismatic movie. Are you kidding me? that thing it's just been repackaged okay then we saw out of this second great awakening then the charismatics and the mormons and the shakers remember they would go into there and try to suck people away into their false teaching okay but then the charismatics during this time came up with what's called the holiness movement okay now number one i want to point out two things just so far is number one is this anything new Is this the latest movement, what we're seeing today? No, it's just all rehashed, same old thing throughout history, okay? That's why it's called the untold history of the charismatic movement. Dare I say that most and many charismatics probably don't even know their own history, that this is nothing new under the sun, like Solomon said. That's number one. Number two, what we're gonna see is this holiness movement. It had 0% to do with holiness, remember? They picked up on a false teaching from John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist, which was called the second blessing. Basically, the premise is we're gonna see again tonight that somehow you and I didn't get enough of the Holy Spirit at salvation. False teaching, that's a lie. The Bible does not teach that, okay? But they say that we need to get a second dose of the Holy Spirit in order, as John Wesley taught, they picked it up from him, okay, in order to live a perfect life. It's called perfectionism. Can you and I, at any stage prior to getting to heaven, uh, as mature as we can get? Okay, can we become perfect? Right? How many guys married? You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? That person you married, guess what? They may say they're perfect, but they're not, right? I'm not saying they're not spiritual. Okay. Now we saw what's sad is the Bible says that over time we hopefully grow in Christ. We do want to grow in Christ. We don't want to just well, I'm just going to sin. I can't be perfect. you don't want to do that and have a lackadaisical attitude rather what you need to do is read galatians five okay and we saw that if you walk and live and keep in step with the spirit okay then you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh so the christian life is not you're going to become perfect you can't but hopefully as you mature you don't become sinless you but you sin less right that's the process of maturity. Now, my point is, this whole holiness movement, which has nothing to do with holiness, okay, uh, will not lead to that sinning less. It will not, because you're not being taught how to walk and live and keep in step with the Spirit. You're chasing something that the Bible says never to chase after, and it cannot deliver. And so, guess what? You're not going to grow in true maturity, Okay, And it's easy to demonstrate that these people who even say that they have this second blessing, this second outpouring of the Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues. By the way, again, their tongues is not even the biblical gift. Even when it was in function, it's gibberish, and the Bible never teaches that. But they say that when they have it, then somehow now they have the power Okay, to achieve perfection. They still teach it today. Okay? In fact, we're going to see tonight, they believe, I'm going to read some of their doctrinal statements from some of these, their denominations, it's the biggest thing you should ever achieve as a Christian. That's how much they believe in this second blessing thing, okay? Uh, but it's not going to happen, okay? Uh, and we know it doesn't work because guess what? We see their lives too, right? So we'll get to that in a little bit. But before we get into the next section, okay, the holiness move, where did it go from there? Because it continues on up to today. Okay, I want to deal with this aspect, second blessing, to make sure that we're on the right page. Okay, this, the term second blessing, uh, while it is taught in the bulk of charismatic churches, and again, second blessing means that somehow after you get saved, that you need a second dose of the Holy Spirit in order uh, with evidence of tongues, Uh, gibberish if you will uh, in order to be perfect that's what they teach but the the problem is it's found in the bulk of their churches but guess what it ain't found in here shocker Okay. now why would somebody do something like that well again what's your premise God told me to tell you they get their truth outside the bible so you make anything up right? now if you can't make it up then you go search the scripture and you try to twist scripture to make it fit the thing that you just made up Well, again, that's what cults do, and that's not how you interpret the Bible, okay? Okay, but the the Bible does not speak of what they talk about, the second blessing. They call it the baptism of the Spirit with fire. You know, there's different terminology, okay? But the baptism of the Spirit, when does that happen? At salvation, right? But they turned into this second thing. The second blessing is rooted in Pentecostal doctrine. Okay, uh, it is quote the listen to this the ultimate experience to strive for and the greatest achievement of the Christian. Wow! So first of all, it's not even biblical. Second of all, those for you who even say that you got it. Okay, it doesn't even work. But you put it up there at the top and say, the greatest thing you should strive for is this thing really i'm thinking that the greatest thing you should strive for is true christian maturity how do you know that somebody's really maturing in christ do you walk like act like speak like behave like jesus christ do you look like Jesus Christ? Not in externals, hello, but in your behavior in your life. That's a, you're a mature Christian. When you, you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, okay, the word there, a follower, a child, when you're a follower of God, it's mimic, right? So you're mimicking Christ. When Jesus does something, if Jesus did it, you did it. If Jesus says it, you did it. That's true Christian maturity. Don't you think that's the greatest thing? And, Jesus, and we don't do it because we have to. It's because we want to. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commands. In fact, the Bible says, what is the greatest thing you could do? To love God with your whole heart and soul, your mind. And to love somebody else, your neighbor, as yourself, right? But they put this at the absolute pinnacle. It's, it's, it's wild it's not even in the scripture at all in fact listen the assembly of god website states all believers are entitled to and should ardently expect the and and, and earnestly seek the promise of the father the baptism of the holy spirit and fire according to the command of our lord jesus <laughs> really where's that one at okay uh this was the quote normal experience of all in the early church they were further teach that this experience is distinct from and subsequent subsequent to the experience of the new birth so in other words it comes later after you get saved that's directly from their website okay now you're sitting there going like well how in the world could they get this from i mean where, where do they get this from okay well believe it or not they actually pull out scriptures and uh, unfortunately, shocker, it's out of context. I want to get to that. Uh, but by the way, let me give you so this. The confusion about the baptism of the Spirit, okay, uh, leads to obviously confusion in doctrine and teaching. That's what we're seeing today. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we know scripturally, also known as the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that happens at salvation. Romans 8, 9, Ephesians 1, 13. And listen, we are never... We are never commanded to seek it or pray for it. When you become a born-again Christian, bang, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. It ain't like, okay, you got saved. Now you better start praying big time. And that's a whole other aspect. Maybe we can get into it later. But you know, that's it. You got to pray it through, brother. You got to be here, and you got to just keep on praying. You got to pray. Okay, uh, dude, it's been eight hours. I know, but you got to pray it through, man. I'm telling you, something's going to happen. And I think sometimes people just start speaking gibberish because they just want to go home. I got to get out of here. <laughs> I'm not joking. You hear testimonies of people that have come out of that? They'll say it was just a lot of high, high pressure. You know, they come in, I'm just, I'm just, I'm so sick of this and nothing's happening. This is a bunch of baloney, but I'm just gonna do it so I can go. So, and they just make stuff up. But anyway, so, so they're going, but oh no, no. See, the Bible teaches this second outpouring of God's spirit, okay? Now, it's a misunderstanding of the transitional book as you transcend from the Old Testament to the New Testament Okay, and that is the book of Acts. Remember, we've been in that before. But open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Now, there is an account early on after Pentecost, the birth of the church, when the Holy Spirit of God came upon the first believers and they spoke in tongues, literally Glossalia languages, by the way, known languages, as defined by the text. Okay, but then early on, There were a couple accounts in Acts that you see a delayed response in people getting the Spirit of God. Now what we're gonna see scripturally is first of all, this was only early on and it was only for the apostles to get it through their head that it wasn't just that we're switching from the Old to the New Testament. Oh, by the way, the reason why the apostles had miracles and signs and wonders when those gifts that are not in function today were back then, remember the reason why? Because it was a big deal that people were going, hey, we don't need to follow the Old Testament anymore, right? We have a new covenant, a New Testament. So people their whole lives, including the early church who was made up originally of all Jews, okay, who got saved, okay, that's a big deal. So how how are they? how is that gonna be verified? Well, these guys not only come and say it, but they show they have this power. And then once it's been established, do they need to keep doing that? No, and that was again with... Tongues interpretation, that was a sign gift, okay, as well. Same thing we're going to see with this initial delay in receiving the Spirit. It's not a normal experience. It was the other thing that had to be verified. Not only the switching of the Old Testament to the New Testament and finally getting it through people's heads. Okay, wow, God demonstrated it was true. It was this. It was that people can get saved, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, right? Now, remember, the early church was made up of who? The Jews. Now, Jesus even told him, he says, man, you're going to be my witnesses and you're just going to be stuck in Jerusalem because it's just for the Jews. No. What did he say? You're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Right? But guess what? You also read through the book of Acts, uh, even after Jesus told them, right, they weren't moving, were they? So what did God do? He allowed persecution to come and then what? (laughs) He used that as a tool and they finally spread out right? But you started to see Gentiles getting saved, right? So, man, first of all, it's like, are you kidding me? We're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, talking about a radical change, but these, 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 these Gentiles can get saved? Yeah. So, you, you got to put Acts is the church living it live. They're transcending from the old to the new, not just the Jews, but now Gentiles can be saved. So, that's kind of a thing that they got to get used to, so how does God verify that this in fact is real, just like it really was that they moved from the old to the new? He does the same thing he did at the birth of the, Jewish, of the church that was made up of all Jews. There was an outpouring of the Spirit and they spoke in known languages as a sign. So in the beginning, because after it gets solidified into the apostle's head, that the Gentiles could be saved, God did the same thing to a few of the Gentiles. Right? They got saved, but they didn't get the Spirit until the apostles showed up to see with their own eyes God brought the Spirit. At that point, they began to speak. and ju- Because it what? It sent a message. Oh, that's what happened to us at Pentecost. I-, I guess it is real. But that was only at the very beginning until, just like the switching from the old to the new, but once they got the idea, oh yeah, it's for Jews and Gentiles, God's demonstrated that, you never see it again, Ever. I said all that to get to this. They take a look at these few passages that deal with this delay, and they say, see, that's the second blessing. And you need to have us come lay hands on you so you can get this second blessing, this dose of spirit of God, so you can become perfect. Major false teaching. Two passages. Again, the first one we're going to take a look at. You're going to see the examples. Acts chapter 10, 34 through 48. Let's take a look there. Then Peter began to speak. Now, this is the account of Cornelius. Cornelius was what? It was a Gentile, right? And he gets saved, right? Are you, what? Gentiles get saved? Watch how God proves to Peter, the apostle, that yeah, they can get saved too, bud. Watch this. Then then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show what? Favoritism. Favoritism, why? Because everybody can get saved now, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach the to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now listen, while Peter was still speaking these words, what happened? Bang! The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the Jewish guys there were with Peter, who had come with Peter, they were what? What? They're astonished at the what? The gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on who? Even the Gentiles. Are you serious? Now, what was the proof? For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Acts chapter 2, when the church was born. How did you know it was real? Same thing they began to speak in other languages as the spirit came upon them and they were praising God. So do you see what God's doing here? They were just like, what? Gentiles get saved. Oh, in case you doubt, bang, here's the spirit. And they did the same thing he did in Acts 2. You getting it? And then Peter said, hey, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then then they asked Peter to stay with him for a few days. Now, back up to Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight. We're going to see another encounter. And again, this is just in the very beginning, just until the message is drilled into the early church's head via the apostles, that yes, the Gentiles can be saved. From that point, there's never a delay. When somebody is saved, you're instantly indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, and again, remember, Acts is a transitional book. You're transcending life. We look back 2,000 years, and we have it all recorded for us. They were living it live. Okay, as they were making the transition. Acts chapter 8, let's take a look. Verse 14, let's take a look there. Now, Simon the sorcerer, Simon came out of the cult. okay? And uh, and so watch what happened there. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now the Samaritans are getting saved? All right, how are we going to verify this is really from God? Well, what happened? Who'd they send? The apostles, Peter and John. Now, when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the what? The Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not come upon them. That's because they needed a second blessing of God. That's big. No, it's not at all what's going on there. They had simply been baptized into the name of Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on and they what? They received the Holy Spirit. Again, you got to be kidding me. Cornelius got saved. How do you verify it? Well, watch this. I'm going to give him the spirit in front of your own eyes. Bang. And he began to to speak, right? Uh, What? The Samaritans get saved too? Are you serious? Even though he said that. You'll go out into Judea, Maria, right? To the ends of the earth, okay? And so he doesn't write before their very eyes. Now, uh, so that's the delay. But again, this is just in the beginning. This is not normal procedure. It's just until they get it through their heads. Yes, the Gentiles can be saved. Oh, by the way, we're not gonna go there. As early as what, Acts 15, when they had the early church uh, uh, council in Jerusalem, and they said, they said, oh man, these Gentiles are getting saved right and left. And they created a list to give to the Gentiles. Of things to refrain from. And a lot of it was just not to freak the Jewish people out. Like eating meat with sacrifice of blood. Or, you know, with blood stealing and stuff like that. And sexual immorality. Okay, Notice in that list they mention nothing about. And you better pray real hard to get a second dose of the Holy Spirit of God. You better need speaking in tongues. They don't mention any of that stuff. And if that was such the priority uh, in this so-called Christian life. Then why didn't they ever mention it. Whether it be tongues or a so-called second blessing. But they don't. But now listen to this. Keep reading. And you're not only going to see that this delay of the Spirit was very temporary only to get the message across, and then it's always instantaneously when you get saved because there's no need to keep doing it, right? But notice some guy, Simon the sorcerer, thought that he could get a second dose of the Spirit and watch what the apostles say to him, right? Let's keep reading now. Uh, Verse 18, right? So when Simon saw that the Spirit was given by laying on the, on, uh, the apostles' hands, and again, it happens at salvation now, but then it happened and he was there. He saw it, right? But he thought that this was some special power they had and that, listen to what he said. And he offered them what? Money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, this is actually cleaned up. I'll give you the actual Greek in a second. May your money perish with you. In the Greek, you really, you know what it's saying? To hell with you and your money. It's very strong words. And here's why he rebuked him. Because you thought you could what? Buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he'll forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Ooh, wait a second there. So here we see that this delay of the spirit, these passages the charismatics bring up that say, oh, this is proof, it's, a, it's, a sec- it's after salvation. That was only temporary, only to get the message across. So mistake number one. Number two, those who thought that they could get a second dose of the spirit, even offer money. Oh, by the way, these people that are supposedly having this ability to lay hands on you so you can get a second dose of the spirit so you couldn't supposed to be perfect and speak in tongues, uh, usually what do you gotta do? you got to pay money, don't you? you got to pay money to go hear that speaker, get his books, learn the techniques, go to the course and all that stuff or make you into the conference. That is exactly today. It's like you stopped reading. Keep reading. And the apostles rebuke people thinking they could get another dose of the Spirit of God and even have the power themselves to do it to other people. To hell with you and your money, the apostles say. Now, and yet, now, today, you would say, that's the greatest thing that a Christian should strive for. Wow. Talk about twisting of the scripture. Oh, and by the way, so much for sinless perfection. <laughs> yes, That's a big sin right there, right? Okay, but the problem is, it's not true. Anybody, it's the same thing with the word faith teachers, right? They say, you just got to have enough faith. You know, we'll eventually get into how that all got started, too, Lord willing. Uh, But really, so if I just have enough faith that I can be, have all the wealth I want. How does that work out? Well, it works out good for them because you gotta pay them to get these things, right? But not the average Joe. Oh, oh, and this one's my favorite. You could also have perfect health. Really, how's that working out for you, right? I'm watching you over 30 years now, uh, Finny Ben, I mean Henny Ben or whatever your name is. Uh, (laughs) And uh, dude, you're getting wrinkles way more than I'm getting. (laughs) Your face is sliding off. What's the matter, your face sliding down? What's going on? How come you don't have perfect health? It doesn't work. And folks, I'm telling you this whole idea that you can become perfect. And these people believe. They've now got a second blessing because they went through the thing. They did all the routine. They paid the money and they the hoopla and they supposedly speak now in gibberish and all this stuff and now they're perfect. Are you kidding me? No, you're not. One guy shows it. Let's take a look.
0: I went to my 10th year reunion, talked to a young fellow named Chuck. His wife had become a Christian. And had gotten into the movement, I got to visiting with Chuck, and he said he no longer went to church. And I said, how come? And he said, because he couldn't get it. I said, get what? Get it. He couldn't get the great whatever you get. It didn't come on him. And now, I didn't have time to do a little study in pneumatology there with him, but he would, he'd pretty well punted, because obviously God just didn't love him, so he gave it up. So there's a problem when you don't get it. I'll tell you another problem. It's when you do. Because you now have something that the rest of the family doesn't have. Now there's a difference in the body of Christ as far as difference in gifts. Mine is in teaching. Another man's is in administration. Another man's in service. Another man's in giving. Another man's in leading. But there is no spiritual gift that heightens your relationship to God. God. And yet this is what we've done to this idea of tongues and we've coordinated it with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And you have something now, logically speaking, that not everybody else has and you have to say consistently that the rest of the body of Christ would be better off if they were just like you. Now that is proud. And I'll tell you what else it is. You have in the church now the haves and the have-nots. And that is divisive. And there is no way that you can bring that teaching. That after you become a Christian, there is an accelerated level of spirituality that comes by your receiving of the Holy Spirit. That is as divisive an idea. The have-nots are now jealous. The haves are proud. Because everybody needs to be like them. Can you imagine if I ended the service by saying, it's good that you're a Christian, but if you really want the fullness of God, you all need to be like me. Now my gift is in the area of teaching, come up forward, I'm going to lay hands on you and you'll be like me. You'll speak and pray with a Waco accent. You would say, that is the most revolting idea I've ever heard, you'd have to say the guy's a cult leader, and you'd be right. Nothing could be further. It's divisive, it's arrogant, and I'll tell you what else it is. It gets to be downright, um, well, how can I say it, it can make you weird, and I'll tell you why. Because you can tell me till the cows come home that you have been a second blessing and you have a power over sin now and you don't sin anymore. But the fact is, you still are going to struggle with lust and with lying and cheating and anger and all of those things. But you just can't have them anymore because you're not supposed to. So you know what you do in that belief system? You sweep them under a rug because they're not supposed to exist, hypothetically. And when you do them, you can't own up that you've done them. And that is why you can see, and I don't mean to be nasty here, but this is why you can get a charismatic leader like Jim Baker that had the second blessing, the only problem was he had a problem with fraud and with adultery and perversion. Or Jimmy Swaggart that had the second blessing, and he could say from the pulpit, we had to excise this stuff like cancer, he's got a problem, with hookers in South Louisiana. And here you've got Bob Tilton. He's got a problem with his second wife. He's now been divorced twice in the last five years. And he's waiting now a trial over the mishandling of funds. And this guy down here in Dallas that's waiting extradition right now for laundering money through his church, in the big charismatic church. And that's the tip of the iceberg. No, you can say all day that I've got the second blessing and I don't sin. I know for a fact you do. Because I've had to counsel these folks. So if I sound emotional, on it's because I am. Because I have to deal with the residue of this movement. I want you to know your pastor has not received any great second blessing. I have not yet learned the blessedness of the first blessing. I have not yet plumbed the depths of the glories of Christ. And in him we are made complete. Amen.
1: I got everything I need to salvation. I got everything I need right here for life and godliness. And as I grow in maturity, I can become more like Christ, not become sinless because he was the only sinless one. But I can sin less as I learn daily Galatians 5 to walk and live and keep instead of the spirit. That's what needs to be taught. So just as the apostles rebuked Simon the sorcerer, for thinking that he could get a second dose of the Spirit, folks, these people in love need to be rebuked as well. It's a bunch of baloney. It doesn't even work. So that I just want to clarify before we move on. We're all on the same page because they're going to come back with supposed scripture like these passages. Out of context. And say, oh no, right there. And if you don't understand Acts and how it's a transitional book, you might get duped yourself. So I wanted to clarify that. Holiness movement. So where did it go for the holiness movement? Well, again, we're dealing with the time frame of the Great Awakening, early through the mid-1800s. Uh, well, then a guy came along who picked it up as well and preached it at, these, uh, at the Awakening, and that was a guy named Charles Finney. Charles Finney. Okay? Serious, serious looking guy here, as you can see. And... Um, it could have been a bad day. Maybe somebody ran over his cat on the way to the Photoshop store. I don't know. I mean, but at least his uh, cousin Herman showed some emotion. And uh, But we'll just go back to Charles Finney. I had to throw that in there. Sorry. That's crone humor. Let's move on. <laughs> I'm probably going to get emails on that. Oh, Whatever. Charles Finney, serious, serious looking guy, but he had some serious, serious problems, serious errors, okay? He was. Uh, he started out an American Presbyterian minister. But he became a big leader in this second great awakening. Unfortunately, what he brought in was false teachings and a lot of the charismatic behavior and the belief about this second blessing uh, that you can achieve perfection by getting another dose of the spirit of God. Uh, He's also the one, if you ever wonder where this came from, he was the first preacher to employ the method of altar calls to encourage people to make a decision Christ. This is where it came from, came from fitting. He preached again. He did do some good things. And again, that's what, you know, you see some of the charismatic communities, you know, they do some good stuff. I'm not saying all bad, but again, that's good, but that doesn't mean you can't say, but you're teaching false teaching here and destroying lives. Right? Uh, Let me give another point. Do Mormons do good stuff? I guess we can't say nothing because they're doing some good stuff. What about Jehovah's Witnesses? Right? They got a new word from God, but they do good stuff. Right, no, it's the same thing. So he did do good, good stuff, some good stuff. He actually preached against slavery at that time. That's great. He fought, against, uh, fought for abolition. He cared deeply for the African-American civil rights. He supported the underground railroad efforts to rescue slaves. That's fantastic. But the guy did a lot of unfortunate stuff and uh, false teaching. Uh, the second great awakening, just to give you a contrast, the first great awakening uh, had its roots more in what would be considered Calvinism right? Focusing more on the sovereignty of God, God's mercy, and, uh, and things of that nature. The second great awakening was more what would be considered Arminian. Now, if you're not familiar with the Calvinism-Arminian debate, that's a, a, a big issue. But basically, Arminianism, Jacobus Arminius, okay, tried to take on Calvin, got slaughtered. And uh, but basically, uh, uh, Arminius is basically the idea that uh, you could lose your salvation, Right is is one of the many things. Okay, and again, so you're getting some of this into the Second Great Awakening. Basically, the First Great Awakening, okay, I would say is probably a more biblical experience, not that there wasn't biblical good stuff going on in the Second, I'm not saying that, but what happened is the charismatic behavior attached itself to that, started to infiltrate that, came out of that, and as we're gonna see, if we can get that far tonight, it went beyond the Great Awakening and really began to spread. Okay, so I just wanna bring that up. Well, this is Charles Finney. This is his mindset. Now, let me give you an idea of just how many false teachings, other than even just the second blessing false teaching, he taught during this time frame. He denied that mankind had a sinful nature inherited from Adam, whoa. Uh, He also said that Christ's death on the cross, according to Finney, was not a payment for sin as much as it was a demonstration that God was serious about keeping the law, Whoa, so with your so-called articles, what were you guys, what were you having people come forward to receive? What? Uh, Anyways, Charles Finney is also, again, known for Christian perfection. Again, coming from uh, Wesley, this idea that you can become sinless. Now, according to Finney, only when we are truly willing to give up all sin, yielding absolutely to God's will, can we be filled with the fullness of God. He also maintained that even when Christians desire this perfection and pray for perfection with agony, you got to pray it through. Oh, for, I, well, I've been here for two days. I haven't eaten. I don't care. Pray. Pray. Right? That's a very uh, a common behavior. They still, though, he says, only think themselves willing to be perfect and may indeed be deceiving themselves as to the true motive. So in other words, you're never really going to know. Have fun. You might be lying to yourself, but just keep praying. Is this starting to sound a little bit legalistic? Yeah, because this is what it also looks at. I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen in um, non-charismatic churches, but one thing you find a lot in charismatic churches, a lot of legalism. You know, you got to have your hair up. You can't wear makeup. You got, you know, we'll get to that in a little bit. Charles Finney, was he correct? Absolutely not. Does God require us to be perfect before we can have full fellowship with him? Are you kidding me? Right? But again, that's one of the things that he taught. Paul says the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And this means that the law showed us our inability to be perfect. Therefore, we needed a Savior. We needed Jesus Christ. The law showed us, I can't be perfect. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. right? It's not that somehow that you can get this second experience later. And speaking in tongues is evidence of that. And now you can be perfect. Nowhere are you gonna see that in the scripture with them. Only when we're honest with ourselves can we begin to make progress as believers. And part of that honesty is to admit that we are fallen in desperate need of Christ's righteousness. And I love this. Remember, they believe with this teaching that you become perfect, you become sinless. You might wanna read this verse, 1 John 1, eight through nine. So when these people say, I've got the second blessing and I am now have the power to be sinless, really. 1 John 1, 8, 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So are these people also being taught that you shouldn't even ask for forgiveness when you sin? Because apparently when you sin, because we know you sin, because nobody's perfect, uh, is you just sweep it under the rug like the guy said? You just lie? Or are you are going to spur another teaching? And there is another teaching out there that says that you and I shouldn't even ask for forgiveness. It's crazy stuff that's going on in the church today. The Bible makes it clear that only perfection, the only perfection we can gain was given to us on the cross. And that we are not only justified, but also sanctified by the offering of Christ, Hebrews 10. And faith is what saves us, and faith is what changes us. Okay? So that's just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on with Charles Finney. And it wasn't just the second blessing. This is all kinds of unfortunate uh, false teaching uh, as well. Now, uh, where did it go from Charles Finney? So he was bringing this into the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, right? And so people were coming forward and leaving with, unfortunately, this mindset. So it started to spread from there. Right? well, then it began to go to this place called Oberlin, Oberlin College, okay, in Ohio, because he became the president of that, okay? And then so now students are being taught this, okay? Uh, now, they, again, they did some good things back in the day, certainly for that day, right? Oberlin College of Ohio accepted students without regard to race or sex, okay, that's good. Uh, they were very active in ab- uh, the abolition movement, the Underground Railroad, uh, and things of that nature. So that's good. In fact, uh, the first guy who was the president, who Charles Finney took over, was a guy named Asa Asa Mahan. Okay. Now Asa Mahan, okay, started out as the first president uh, after this college was started. Let me save my place here. This college was started in eighteen. 18- 33 okay and it started by two presbyterian ministers john j shippard and philo stewart now listen to what their vision is perfectly godly wonderful this is what every school should do this is hold the mindset watch the purpose of an education to get a good job because you need a good job to get a lot of money because you need a lot of money to buy these things that nobody needs to impress people you don't know and don't even care yeah see that's what it is today but the founding of our country, the purpose of an education was to show yourself approved unto God to be a better servant for the people around you in humanity and for the cause of Christ. Now listen to what they started this college with. is it, here's the, Their vision was, a community of Christian families with a Christian school which should be a center of religious influence and power which should work mightily upon the surrounding country and the world a sort of missionary instruction for training laborers for the work abroad. Now that's a... Good cause to start school. Well, that was in 1833, okay, and uh, they hire this guy Asa, okay, to be the first president. Maybe it started out good. But guess what happened three years later, 1836? Quote, Asa Mahan experienced what he called a, quote, baptism with the Holy Spirit. And he believed that this experience had cleansed him from the desire and inclination to sin. So the president became charismatic, right? Now, he was also the professor of, guess what there? Theology. So guess what, unfortunately, man, it didn't take long for the, I'll I'll use this word, didn't take long for the enemy to intervene. They started out with great ideals. Three years later, man. (laughs) You got a bad guy in a position. Hey, let me, let's bring that one down to something practical. Does that ever happen to churches? The churches, let's say uh, they, they need a new pastor, or the pastor passed away, or they're just finding themselves a new, new pastor. Can one wrong guy in the pulpit take you from bad to worse? <laughs> yeah, you hear horror stories about it all the time, right? And it doesn't take long. Or you might still continue on as a church, but the guy with false teaching swayed enough people and took it in a whole nother direction and the other people that were solid are the ones that had to leave. Hear it all the time. And so that's why I think Crone translation history is what happened here. They started out great three years later, their president became charismatic. He's the one with theology and it started to spread. So again, where we're going, we're tracing the trail, Holiness Movement, Charles Finney, Great Awakening, Oberlin. Okay, now guess who followed Asa Mahan? The second president was Finney. And we just saw all the uh, false teachings that Finney taught. And so guess what? It just continued on. So maybe only the first three years, if you will, uh, it was a halfway decent college, I don't know. So Finney takes over. Now, the Oberlin student body has a long history of activism. Well, in, in the beginning, that, that's not a bad thing, right? Uh, they, against you know slavery and you know and things of that nature and that's that's good underground nobody's against that but what happens when you're liberal with the Bible like the charismatic mindset is you know what this college has turned into today talk about sad it is one of the biggest liberal and this is supposed to be a Christian college it is one of the biggest liberal okay colleges in the United States of America But I think it's a direct correlation of once you start flying uh, free away from this, God told me to tell you, and your theology is wrapped around that, okay, guess what? You're going to make up everything. And then it's going to be reduced to just a bunch of experiences and do-gooders. It's called the social gospel. Okay, But listen to this. This is uh, in 2016. This is where they're at today. Oberlin students attempted, uh, and Oberlin students, so this is one that's supposed to be a Christian student, Shop, tried to shoplift wine from Gibson's Bakery. Oh, hey, what what happened to sinless perfection? Oh, but whatever. Okay, and the student and two additional students assaulted the clerk. So you got caught, and then two other year students jumped in with you. Now, then the Oberlin students, this is supposed to be a Christian institution, staged large demonstrations urging a boycott of the bakery on the ground that the store was racist. You know, I would say the people who started this and who were against those kind of things would be rolling over in their graves because now racism today, is just they've, it's been denigrated. You disagree with anybody, automatically somehow you're a racist. You're not even on the topic of racist, but somehow you're a racist just because you disagree with somebody on something. What's that? Oh, oh you're eating the tuna sandwiches? I, I don't really like tuna. You're a racist. Now, then we laugh because it's what? That's what's going on right now. And I'm sitting there going like, man, when somebody actually is racist, you're like the boy who cried wolf. Nobody's going to believe you because I'm a racist because I disagree with the tuna sandwich, right? But anyway, so that's the original ones, man. And now you're going to sit there and you guys went into the store. The guy tried to steal wine. You guys said, and you you start fighting with the clerk, you and two other buddies, and then you said they're racist. Well, guess what? Sometimes the truth prevails. And this so-called Christian college Uh, got their, got sued big time. Watch this, this is a recent one. But finally, the public is catching on with Smollett, Covington, Kavanaugh, now add the Oberlin case to this education in fakery. A jury nailed Oberlin College and a dean named Meredith Raimondo with an $11 million penalty for siding with three black students who claimed they were racially profiled at a bakery in 2016. The case got a lot of press. There were massive protests targeted the bakery, but not just by students either. The dean actually distributed a flyer claiming the bakery had a history of racism and encouraged a boycott. The bakery went through hell for obvious reasons. But finally, truth went out. The students pleaded guilty to attempted theft, admitting they weren't profiled at all.
2: Here's a photo of the family who owns the bakery. Mm -hmm. You can see the racial hate in their eyes. So once again, what the media first promoted turned out false. Colleges are watching us and you. Calling the actions of Oberlin College in their handling of a student demonstration institutional
1: arrogance, attorneys for a family-owned bakery market harmed by those demonstrations
2: asked a Lorain County jury to send a message that will resonate with other institutions around the country.
1: We need to deter and discourage and tell them and this country that there's consequences for the things you say and you do. The Gibsons stopped an African-American student
2: from shoplifting at their store, and in demonstrations afterwards, other Oberlin College students labeled the family racist. The same jury already awarded the Gibsons $11 million
1: for their damages, and after less than two hours of deliberation, the jury on Thursday decided the college owes the Gibsons an additional punitive damage award of more than $33 million plus attorney's fees ooh, I'd say God spanked you. Oh, and those attorney fees, so you just heard the other two fees. Uh, The attorney fees, this is July 2019, uh, the court ordered them to pay an additional six and a half million to reimburse them for the legal fees. Whoa. But hey, you're gonna get liberal with God's word, right? And you do stuff like that. that, What's that got to do with the the original goal? To train people up to share the Christ and to get equipped. But see, once you get away from the word of God and it's, I don't think it's by chance. And speaking of liberalism, this is at the same so-called Christian college. They are major, major advocates for homosexuality, LGBT. Oberlin is also known for its liberal attitude towards sexuality and gender expression. Oberlin has been consistently ranked among the friendliest college campuses campuses for LGBT students. And you're supposed to be Christian. The founders must be rolling over in their grave, man. It's crazy. But again, I think it spills downhill. You get away from God's word and you get all kinds of unfortunate teachings. All right, so, so that's there. So we're now at the holiness movement. We've got the great awakening. You got Charles Finney who was one of the, the, the big uh, proponents of the great awakening, but he brought that charismatic element and false teachings in. Then they begin this institution that had at least three possibly good years <laughs> with high ideals, but er, here comes the charismatic influx. Oh, by the way, I've shared with you the story. Uh, this does happen to churches. Um, I was just in uh, Iowa uh, preaching in a family Bible camp. And so I was talking with the other pastor there. And we were sharing horror stories. That's what pastors do, in case you're wondering, right? And we go, oh, yeah, well, this happened to me one time. Oh, yeah, well, this happened to me one time. <laughs> anyway, so I shared with him the story. He talks about he talk, told me a story about this church that uh, uh, one of the people there embezzled $100,000. Got caught and didn't think he did anything wrong. But anyway, so I said, oh yeah? I said, uh, watch this one. I said, "A pastor friend uh, that I know uh, when I was pastoring in California where I'm going with this, right? Because these guys, I think this college got taken over by charismatic mindset and it's gone down into where it is today, unfortunately. Not a witness for Christ, that's for sure. But um, there was a, a charismatic church in the community and a lot of the charismatic people came into this Baptist church. And that's fine if you want to come here. Uh, same thing here, I don't care, whatever, you can come here. All right? But they, they were kind of not impressing that they wanted to have a little bit more of a charismatic feel to the so-called worship service. But the pastor said, no, sorry, that's not us, that's not what we're doing, it's not biblical, we're not doing it. All right? But they came and whatever, and they interspersed themselves and, and whatever. He goes on, vac- this is a true story, he goes on vacation for two weeks. When he came back, It was in a parsonage. When he came back, on the parsonage was, they voted him out. You're no longer a pastor. They moved so fast, in two weeks, they overtook the church and voted him out. True story. Now that's in a microcosm, but I really think that's what happened to this college. And and again, I'm not anti, I'm not saying, I've said this to them blue in the face. We talked about that just earlier again tonight. As you guys know, with the first 20 studies, how many times did I say, I'm not saying everybody who's charismatic is in the occult and all that stuff or goes to a charismatic, I'm not saying they're all like, but I'm saying this is what happens, right? Uh, It's getting so obtuse, we have to deal with this. And this behavior can come into a church. I have seen uh, the, uh, the issue of the gift that you, first of all, Bible translations, that'll split a church right down the middle number one number two what we're seeing today the homosexual issue split a church right down the middle which to me i don't, why is there a split it's pretty clear in the bible but whatever right uh but the other issue sp- the gifts of the spirit i.e. a charismatic flavor that'll split a church right down the middle now the reason why i say that is because guess what after oberlin it moves to conferences right right and let, and let me explain what, what that is and we're chasing the trail And what you're going to see after the conference is, is it leads to split after split after split after split. Because that's what this does. It just, it just, it's, and that's why it's hard to get a a wrap on the the full beliefs of much of the charismatic community is because there are so many splits even within their own uh, uh, section, if you will. But basically, from the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney's influence everybody jumping on from the Holiness Movement, which had nothing to do with holiness, it was about that second blessing thing, p- sinless perfection, false teaching from Charles Wesley, goes to this college, what he heads up, now it goes to uh, conferences, right? They basically, now we're past the Great Awakening, now you're, you're, you're outside the, a civil war, and so they start getting nostalgic. And they go, man, remember those days back in the Great Awakening? Right? And they start having more conferences. Okay, to, and then basically, except these conferences are now full-blown charismatic. Right? But it begins to infect other churches and begin to split. Let me give you some examples. Baptists began to fall for this and they embraced the second work of grace and they founded new denominations. Right? Causes splits where it goes. Such as the Holiness Baptist Association, the Ohio Valley Association of Christian Baptist Churches of God. Uh, then among the Anabaptists, and the brethren in Christchurch, they split off with the Calvary Holiness Church. Now, remember, uh, the phrase that they, a lot of them use is what? Holiness, but it has nothing to do with that. It just means this charismatic second blessing, false teaching. Uh, then they go on and say that the, the holiness uh, uh, people, they start getting legalistic. Because remember, you are now without sin. Well, no, you're not. But see, but you gotta give the appearance that you are. So how are you going to demonstrate to everybody that you've got this second dose of the Spirit, supposedly, with evidence of this gibberish stuff? And how are you going to prove outwardly to people that you don't have sin? Ah, and this is what churches still do to this day, folks. They create a list. They create a list of sins. And if you don't keep them and everybody's watching you, then it proves you're without sin. Now, the word that we would use for that is simply called legalism. Right? And so, let me give you some of these early guys. They came up with lists. Because you've got to prove to people you're sinless, right? right? And so it leads to legalism. The holiness denominations emphasize the wearing of a head covering by women. There's churches that still do this today. Right? Uh, also, plain dress, temperance, foot washing, and pacifism. The Mennonites got affected with this. And they branched off and founded uh, the missionary church. Uh, and then uh, they started having these holiness camp meetings. So they start individual uh, denominations started getting infected. They start splitting off. They have these camp meetings. Now, the first one, and uh, this was after the Civil War, Uh, this was in Vinland, New Jersey, 1867. They attracted as many 10,000 people. Now, back then, that's a big crowd, right? And again, this is before Netflix. So this is serious action. You want to go check out what's going on. 10,000 people. I got to check this out. Right? Now, that was uh, at the close of that, that was a holiness camp meeting. So basically, they got nostalgic. I want to do it again. It was so great back in the Great Awakening days. And uh, they formed the National Camp Meeting Association for the Promotion of Holiness. Now again, every time you see that word holiness, does it have anything to do with holiness? No. It's this charismatic behavior and false teaching and the so-called second blessing. So then they, that went so well, they decided, well, let's do it again next year. So the second national camp meeting was held in Mannheim, Pennsylvania and drew upwards of 25,000 people. Big, big, big crowd. In fact, people said this is, they called it a Pentecost. Why? Because of the spiritual power and influence. No, it's just a big, giant, charismatic meeting is all it was, right? Now, they decided to do it again a third year. So the third year, this time it was done in Round Lake, New York, and this time the press got involved. They got so big, they finally got the media behind them. Did they use media today in the charismatic? Yeah, but listen to what it says here. They got write-ups in numerous papers, including, they got a big, it was like their Oprah moment. Now you hear about people that write a book, if only I can get on Oprah, man, I can, win. Yeah, whatever. She's the, a new age priestess, but whatever. Uh, get her a new age study. But they got, they had their, if you will, Oprah moment. They got a large two-page pictorial in Harper's Weekly. Oh yeah. And, quote, these meetings made instant religious celebrities out of many of the workers. Interesting. That's just like today, isn't it? These icons there, and they're supposed to be all famous and whatever. And and the ones that we saw that were supposed to be sinless, but they obviously weren't. Okay. But the same tactic today. Then it began to uh, uh, infect others. Christian Missionary Alliance. Did you know that's what they teach? 1874 Albert Benjamin Simpson he felt the need for such a life for himself he founded Christian Missionary Alliance and this is from their uh, statement of faith the will of God this is today the will of God is for each believer to be filled with the Holy Spirit and sanctified holy to receive power for holy living and effective service this is both a crisis and progressive experience occurring after conversion that's too bad Uh, Then they began to go into more meetings. They developed what was called the Western Holiness Association. That was in Illinois. Uh, Then they have uh, conventions uh, in in Cincinnati and New York. And then in 1881, you had the development of another outfit called the Church of God. Okay. And that was by a guy named D.S. Warner. And uh, now Church of God has so many splits, I don't even know where to begin. Okay, and uh, because again, a lot of the splits are you come up with your list of legalism to prove that you're sinless, but this church, you might have 50, but this one has 60, right? Well, that one's got 60, but this one over here, that's really sinless perfection, has 75, right? And, and things and things of that nature, so it goes on and on. But listen to what this guy taught. He taught that God had restored the light of Christian unity in 1880. <laughs> Christian what? unity and what's happening ever since uh, uh, the second great awakening. And you start holding these conferences. It's created what? Everywhere it went. Division. And yet somehow the Christian unity has come back. But here's the deal. Christian unity apparently is when we agree with what they teach and we do it their way. Watch what it says. Uh, That all the saved need to come out of Babylon. So basically what we're doing here would be considered Babylon. And we need to worship together in one place rather than being separated, listen, by creeds, dogmas, and doctrines of men. Isn't that the same cry they make out today? I don't need doctrine. That's a doctrine of men. I need the spirit of God. I need a... You downplay. Folks, this was going on. This is nothing new. 1880. Hello. From the founder of the Church of God. Okay. Uh, and, uh, but he also believed that false Christianity was the harlot woman in the book of Revelation no first of all the church is nowhere uh to be found in the seven-year tribulation we leave prior okay number two okay so that's a big major problem and that global religion harlot has nothing to do with the church it can't be because the church is not there but anyway whatever they also believe uh okay baptism uh the lord's supper communion but they also push foot washing and it's just you push it it's mandatory Right? These practices, quote, are considered mandatory conditions of Christian experience and fellowship. Now, again, once you get into this idea that you're perfect, you have to play that game and demonstrate to everybody externally that you are perfect. Here comes even more legalism, right? Now, uh, they are against outward adornment, which includes you cannot wear a wedding ring. How does that make you perfect? Whatever. You can't wear earrings. Ladies, you cannot wear lipstick. Women should always refrain from wearing clothing that pertains to men, i.e., this is those churches, ladies can't wear pants. Okay. Women should not cut their hair, but instead grow it long. Men should keep their hair short, and musical instruments should not be used in services. Really? Well, there's about 150 chapters called the Psalms, which are basically all music. And in there, they use... Instruments. Over (laughs) and Just whatever. But, But see, you're demonstrating to everybody how sinless, perfect you are. Because you don't wear pants and you don't sing songs with instruments. Do you see how ridiculous? We laugh at this, but these people are under this. Now, here's what the problem is. Just like the second blessing produces wicked results... Total hypocrisy. First of all, it's a false teaching. People are being led astray. You'll never become a disciple. You'll never walk and live and keep in step with the spirit because you're trying to seek this second dose of the spirit that you already have the spirit, if you're born again, that is, but you're never shown how to actually achieve becoming sinless, not sinless, but sinless, okay so that's bad enough so people are being led astray but you get into this aspect and it's legalism folks one of the worst experience is to be a born-again believer and stuck under one of these legalistic things you never learn about the peace of God you never just get to rest in God you're always striving you're always wondering freaking out in fact this guy brings out the wickedness of this legalism
2: not just the second blessing but the legalism to prove to everybody how perfect you are watch this But here are seven battles that people commonly face that are signs they've been under the influence of a religiously legalistic kind of environment that could even be spiritually abusive in many cases. One is the big one, which is performance-based Christianity, which is my sense of approval and affirmation is based on what I do. I am loved for what I do. My identity is based on what I do. And it doesn't understand the grace and love atmosphere that God has created in Christ Jesus for us to engage in. So it prevents us from experiencing the true freedom that's available to us us. Second is religious perfectionism, which is this constant sense of I'm not doing enough, I'm not achieving enough, I'm not breaking through enough. It's just nothing's ever enough. So we're in a hamster wheel constantly. And this becomes a subliminal mindset in a lot of our spiritual interaction with God and even in our activities with each other. Third is self-condemnation. Now this is where you get hard on yourself, where you don't know How to love and accept yourself the way that God does. To give yourself grace, because God gives that grace to you in process. His grace is available to help you overcome. It's His empowerment. It's His work on your heart. It's His activation. It's His ability working through you. And so we become very condemning on ourselves. The evil one speaks thoughts of accusation. And then we Uh, come into agreement with it and get very hard on ourselves in our process. Many people are stuck because they're self-condemned in their process and condemnation never produces freedom. It keeps you stuck in the same pattern. Fourth is obsessive thinking, meaning that you ruminate and you stay on and you're constantly obsessed. Maybe you are obsessed about your sin issues and you're constantly obsessed about what you're working on or getting free from. Maybe you're obsessed about, am I right before God? It's one thing to say, hmm, I want to make sure that my life is right before God. It's another thing to be obsessed about it, because now it's tormenting you. It's one thing to say, you know what, I want to walk in holiness. It's another thing to be obsessed with, I'm not holy, I need to walk in holiness, I need to make sure that I'm reading my Bible, make sure I'm fasting, make sure I'm doing all these things. They become obsessive, they become hyperactive in our lives. We don't have the peace in our minds in settling. And a lot of this can come out of being under a religiously legalistic environment that's toxic. We become, five, very prone to guilt. Guilt is a manipulative mindset, and we sometimes attribute all our guilty feelings to being the work and act of God, which we need to get clarification in because guilt is a manipulative force, and God, His voice is not a guilt-ridden voice. He is a God who is holy. He's a God of light. He's a God of love. He's a God of relationship. And so guilt is not a tool for healthy relationship. He leads us into his righteousness. He will even correct us, but he doesn't use guilt to beat us down constantly. That's a sign of religious legalism. A big one that I've worked with a lot of people on is we become afraid of God. I'm not talking about the fear of the Lord. I'm talking about becoming afraid of Him so we avoid Him. We avoid Him in pain. We avoid Him with some of the areas that we don't know how we think He's going to treat those areas. So we avoid Him altogether. And that is not a fear of the Lord. That is not a healthy perspective at all because it causes more avoidance than moving towards Him. And then lastly, these areas combined with other things causes to have a condemning lens of other people. You can tell if you've had some religious legalism influencing you by your response to sin in others around you. If it's just, you know, automatically shutting people out, condemning them, sentencing them, putting a judgment on them without a first a response of mercy, a response of love, a response of compassion.
1: Which is even what Jesus did. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Verses like the Pharisees. Oh, at least I'm not like that guy. But see, this is what this charismatic mindset produces. You have the haves and the have-nots. You got the do's and the do-nots. And that's the game. It creates division. It creates legalism. And it destroys. And it's a horrible False teaching. Now, I will say this as we get ready to close. Um, uh, I I guess you could call it good news. There's been some rethinking going on in the Church of God legalism list. And it began in 1912. It softened up a little bit, Chris, in case you're wondering. Men were now permitted to wear long neckties. Careful, revival's busting out. Okay. And by the 1950s, the movement no longer forcefully taught against mixed bathing, i.e. swimming among the sexes. And you could finally have a TV in your house. Okay. Now, we joke about all that, but this is what this produces, okay, this mindset. Uh, And just for kicks, uh, the church uh, uh, has a school of theology, if you can believe that, with all due respect, uh, in Anderson. Uh, as well but anyway so we're gonna get to the next time we're gonna get to the next big one I can't wait to get to this one because we're familiar with it but we don't understand that they too believe it or not teach this false teaching okay that we've been looking at and that is the 11th one and that is these people called Salvation Army they came out of that same time and have you ever thought about that why do they wear uniforms what's up with that even to this day right why do they use military terms? Why are they called the Salvation Army? And things of that nature. And what do they really believe? Well, hey, Debbie, thanks for asking. You can see the logo there. We'll deal with that, Lord willing, next time. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple of things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. That's lying, okay? How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand, okay? Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another 10 Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one and for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. God bless.